Richard uh, Halverson is a contemporary of, uh, apparently, of uh, Billy Graham. And uh, he actually uh, wrote this. He said, Jesus Christ said more about money than about any other single thing because when it comes to a man's real nature, money is of, of first importance. Money is an exact index to a man's true character. All through scripture, there's an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles his money. True? Now, one of the lines that I uh, often use at the project here is if you want to find out what the wetness of water is like, you don't ask a fish, right? Because the fish doesn't know anything different, okay? And this is one of those things that you can talk about in a church. You talk about money and the way that people handle money. Um, and it's, it's like, I would think that two-thirds of the world who uh, get paid way less than us would come to a Western church and hear a Westerner talk about money and just go, you got no idea, buddy. <laughs> All right? Because we're just in it. We're just kind of part of it. We're taught, to, we're taught to consume. We live in a... I mean, it, it, you don't have to go back too many years to think of a time where we used to fix things. True? If something broke, what would you do? Well, you'd take it to someone who would fix it. What do you do now? Well, you just throw it out and you buy another thing. And so we've, uh, we've actually been, through the marketing machine and through our own culture, we've actually ended up with this mentality that we're consumers. So when we get one thing, we just think, what's the next thing? All right? And I see this massively at school here with students, right? You can show a student a funny clip off YouTube and you know what their next comment is? Can you show us another one? Can you show us another one? Where's the next one? Oh, we're not being entertained now. Can you show me where the next one is? And it's almost like the most evil thing in the world is that I might actually get bored and not have anything new and I've actually been taught to keep consuming things, which is really interesting. So at the end of the day, who am I? Well, I'm someone who lives in the same culture that you do. And, and I prepare this stuff and I think, well, there's got to be a lot of better people than me to preach this message, all right? And you could go through my credit card statements and my bank account and see my uh, withdrawals and my deposits and all that sort of stuff. And you go, well, I think you've got the same issue. All right? But you know what the gig is when you're a preacher guy and you're leading a church is you've got to stand up and talk about stuff that you're not good at because God actually talks about stuff that everyone needs to improve on and, that he wants, and the journey that he wants to take everyone on and everyone's not going to be good at it. Fair enough? So... Here's the bottom line. I'm, I'm not actually preaching this message today because uh, I'm the legend at this and you better become like me, all right? In fact, probably no message should ever be preached for that reason, true? Because that just becomes a legalistic kind of judgmental kind of pressure thing. I'm standing up and telling you this today because this is the way that God sees money and we need to slip in the line with it. Now, let me uh, say one more thing just to preface what I'm going to be saying today. Probably what should be happening in a church that talks about people being generous with their money, and by the way, I'm not specifically talking about you being generous with your money directly to the project, although we'll take it, all right? And we would hope maybe that you might be, right? But that's not the focus of what I'm doing today. Probably what should happen for a church when they talk about being generous is a church should actually um, do some discipleship in helping people to manage their money well, all right? Because that's really important, right? People tend to be, uh, sometimes people can be very poor managers of money and if a church stands up and says you need to be more generous, they could really get in a mess of their money really quickly if they're already in a mess of their money. Does that make sense? You know what? At the moment, 
we just can't do it. We don't have the capacity to do it. We're kind of maxed out in terms of leadership and everything that we're doing, which kind of goes back to where I finished with uh, last week, um, at the end of last week's message when I talked about project kind of vision. We just, honestly, we just can't fit that in, okay? Do we want to fit it in in the future? Absolutely we do. Do we think it's really important? Yeah, we do, all right? But we're all working full time. And uh, unless someone comes along who's just like, I want to do some financial training and some financial help. It's just not going to be able to happen this year, all right? Which is why, visionary-wise, we need to look at freeing some people up to actually do some stuff like that. All right. That's all that prefacing. Here's the thing. Jesus is super unsettling when it comes to money, all right? I feel super uncomfortable. I'm like the worst person here at doing the setup for the offering, all right? Because I always feel really uncomfortable. It's just like I'm going to stand up and tell you that it would be good for you to be generous and give money, all right? And I'm like super keen to not watch anyone put any money in the plate to, uh, and, and not to be keeping tabs. We don't have a role that we're sorting this out on uh, to see who's giving and who's not giving and all that sort of stuff. But let me tell you this, Jesus has a totally different way of doing things, all right? And none of it's actually secretive to him. And there's this really unsettling story in uh, Mark chapter 12. Check this out. It says this. This is verse 41. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And at that point you go, well, that's a bit, I mean, isn't that an invasion of privacy? Like, aren't people just free to give whatever they want to give? His specific goal is I'm going to go up and I'm going to sit next to the offering plate and I'm going to watch everyone and I'm going to watch what they put in. So instead of the helpers that we have every week that carry the offering around, imagine if there was one offering plate and Jesus actually showed up in person. He's here, but he showed up in person and he was the one that walked around with it and he watched what everyone put in and he, and he noticed it all. What would he think? Would anyone else be uncomfortable or is it just me? <laughs> and here's what happens in this story. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, what would a good investment manager say about this widow's investment? Well, it's dumb, isn't it? Don't you need food? Don't you need to buy clothes? What about your family? She puts in the last little bit that she has. And he's sitting there watching, watch Jesus. And you know what he says? She got it right. She gave her last bit. Yeah, it's really interesting because for all of us, like if someone came to you and they said, oh, this is my last $5 and we don't have any food for lunch. I really feel like God might want me to put this in the offering today. And that, do you think I should? What would we say? Well, we'd probably say something like, well, man, I mean, you've got to be able to buy some lunch. You have to be able to eat for lunch. What are you going to eat if you don't have it? You've got to look after yourself. God wants people to look after themselves. Which is kind of true. But what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't say this. 
I mean, imagine if Jesus sat there, he's watching everyone put it in and the widow comes up and she puts her last two coins in that make a penny and he goes, well, that was a dumb thing to do. He says to the widow, right? That was a dumb thing. You should have gone home. You could buy five loaves of Coles bread for that much. All right? But you know what he does is he affirms her and he says, you actually chose wisely. Which actually goes to show that Jesus operates in completely the reverse way of thinking a lot of times to what we do. So, here's what I want to do today. Really quickly, as quick as I possibly can, which could be a while. We're going to go through five myths about money. All good? Here we go. First one's this. The person with the most toys at the end wins. It's not true, right? How many toys do you have when you die? We don't have any because you die. True? You have to leave everything behind. You can't take anything with you. It's the bottom line. You just can't. You don't take anything with you. It doesn't matter what they stick in your coffin with your body. You can't take it with you. Psalm 49 verse 6 to seven, 16 to 17 says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he'll carry nothing away. His glory will not go down with him. There was a news report that I heard where uh, the, uh, the journalist actually said a mother and daughter were away at the coast on holidays when they lost everything they owned. You know what happened to them? Their house burnt down. But why don't we hear this statement said every time someone dies? Every time someone dies, they lose everything that they own. In 2010, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, there are 143,500 deaths which basically means that someone's dying once, one person's dying every three and a half minutes and losing everything. So since I've started, there's probably five or six people have died and lost everything. Why should someone else spend your money? Why wouldn't you use your money to build up treasure in heaven? You see, building up your treasures on earth means that death is going to be lost for you. And I wonder whether that's part of the reason why people fear death so much. Because they're actually moving further and further and further away from their treasure as they get sick and they die. See, if you've spent your whole life actually building up treasure on this planet and then you die, you lose everything that was your treasure. And five minutes after you die, you're going to know exactly how you should have lived. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 to 8, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. In, uh, on uh, news.com.au yesterday there was an article uh, and this, this was it. Uh, Dying Simpsons creator Sam Simon gives away fortune to charity. It says down the bottom there, the co-creator of the Simpsons who is dying of cancer will give to Charity, his entire fortune accrued through the ongoing success of the TV show. So he's decided, he goes, I'm going to give everything away before I die. And there's, a, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a pretty depressing book, most of it, but there's a whole section in there about money. And the, uh, the wise man who, who was Solomon actually says, why would you accumulate all this wealth only just to give it to someone else when you die? He's just kind of going, it's meaningless. It's pointless to spend all this effort and all this time building up wealth for yourself and then when you die, you lose it all. A couple of quotes. 
One from Randy Alcorn and uh, one from Ted Hiskey. You always, Ann said to me yesterday, she goes, it's like Ted Hiskey's got to get a quote or a mention or something every Sunday, all right? And I think he's worthy of it. Uh, here's uh, Randy Alcorn. He says, materialism treats the temporal as if it were eternal and the eternal as if it were non-existent. I just think about that. The problem of materialism boils down to this. While God created us to love people and use things, the materialist loves things and uses people. Ouch. I mean, it's one of the questions for community groups this week is uh, in what areas do you actually think in your head that you're going to live forever? Because for me, I don't know, if you're anything like me, you have patches in your life where you just... You're just living on this, on this level where you just go, well, this is just always going to happen. I'm, I'm always going to be here. I'm always going to keep my stuff. And it's almost kind of a subconscious thing. It's not like, because the intellect kind of kicks in, you go, no, that's not going to happen, right? Because I went to a funeral like three weeks ago, all <laughs> right? And obviously it's going to end somewhere, but sometimes you can just kind of float along. And I think that's uh, part of the reason why in Ecclesiastes, the writer actually says, look, it's better to go to a funeral than go to a wedding. Because a funeral causes you to actually look at your own heart and see life accurately. A wedding can be filled with happiness and people cannot actually deal with the, the true things in life. Okay, here's what Ted Hiskey said. People are for loving and things are for using. Don't get it around the wrong way. I don't remember him saying this, but Anne remembered it. She said, no, that's what he said. I'm just going, that's, well, that would be good to live your life that way, wouldn't it? Second myth here, God gives me the money and I have to give back 10% to show he's number one in my life. But check out this, Job 41.11, God says, who was first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. You don't own anything. You don't even own yourself. Now, you might react to that and go, well, that's a bit rough. No, that's a good thing, all right? That's a good thing. I mean, I was teaching a catechism to my boys a while ago that said, what is my only hope in life and in death? And the answer is that I belong body and soul and everything totally to God. That's your hope. That's actually a really, really good hope. Haggai uh, 2 verse 8 says this, God says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. You don't, none of, none of your stuff is your stuff. None of my stuff is my stuff. So we ought to be asking God the question, how do, you, how do you want me to use your stuff? All right, and we'll get to this a little bit later on. At the end of the day, God's made you his investment manager, right? So you've got to work out how am I going to invest God's stuff to get the greatest return for him, all right? That's just how it is. And that, that will be a totally freeing, liberating thing for all of us. If we can get to the point where we just go, I don't own my stuff, um, we'll be in a good place, all right? I remember a, uh, a couple I was living with when I was uh, at university in Sydney, an older couple had this terrible Nissan people mover van kind of thing, right? And it just kept breaking down and it cost them hundreds of dollars, all right? And I remember sitting down with the, uh, the fellow one night and I said, what are you going to do, man? Because like, they were people who kind of lived by faith and it was like they just, people just gave them money to keep doing the ministry that God had called them to, right? And I'm just going, what are you going to do? Like this thing's costing you a fortune. And you know what he answered me? He said to me this, he goes... Well, he goes, it's God's van, and when God's van breaks down, God needs to provide the money to fix his van. Well, that's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, that would be good if we can look at it that way. 
the difficulty with God is if you want to actually go in and start having some kind of debate with him about percentages of how much you should give, it just gets ugly for you, right? And I'll give you a couple of scriptures to show what I'm talking about. Just don't play the percentage game, right? It, it, it's entirely possible. I mean, Ian Shelton said to me before that uh, the Old Testament tithe was actually more like 25%, not 10%, all right? And in a lot of churches, I think uh, a lot of churches, people are just struggling to give 10% of the cream, all right? And we're not a church that's kind of out there banging on the door and saying, you must give 10%. We're not going to hammer the kind of the tithing out thing out really hard. TCC probably do a little bit more than us and we're totally fine with that. We might get in trouble for saying this, all right? But probably the New Testament impulse is greater than 10%, all right? So, but here's the thing. You want to play percentages? Try these scriptures on. John the Baptist said this about repentance. He said, he who has two coats, let him share with him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Anyone guess the uh, percentage there? If you've got two and you give one to someone else, what percentage have you given away? 50, right? So now we're in trouble already. Okay? So we've gone from 10 to 50, all right? And you're just going, wow, that's, can we, let's find something else. Okay. So then we go to the story of Zacchaeus. The short guy couldn't see Jesus, went up the tree, he was a tax collector, ripped people off a lot. Jesus said, I'm going to come and have dinner with you. Everyone's horrified. He goes and has dinner with him, becomes a Christian, just totally just receives Jesus. And here's what happens. Zacchaeus says this, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. What percentage? 50, right? So you just don't want to play the percentage game with God because he's just going to mess with it, all right? He's already messing with you. Here we go. And then you've got the, uh, the rich young ruler that came up to Jesus and he goes, what will it take for me to get to heaven? What does Jesus say? If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What percentage is that? A hundred, all right? Now we're in trouble, all right? And now you're probably thinking, how does it go up from here? Well, it go- no, it doesn't. But Luke 14, 33, Jesus says this, So therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What percentage is that? 100. That's really uncomfortable, right? Now, you, could, you might have your get-out-of-jail-free card out and go, ah, I don't know what the Sonder girl is doing this. It's not about me, right? I have to do the same thing that Jesus calls me to do, calls you to do. We're all under the same thing and God's just wanting to save the way that we think about cash, all right, and possessions. So I'm with you. And then you get this, uh, there's a scripture that just gets flogged big time when it comes to, uh, you know, pre-sermon, pre-offering sermons, mini-sermons. You know, you go to some churches and they preach it up for 15 minutes about how you've got to get your wallet out and do stuff. You know, puts lots of money in and write the blank check out. Well, this is one that they use, but this is a really interesting scripture. This is out of Malachi 3, verse 8 to 10. Will man rob God? But you're robbing me. But you say, yeah, have we robbed you? And I don't even get it. All right? Actually ripping God off. This is the nature of sin. This is the nature of... Uh, of disobedience to God and, and, and being tempted in different directions is that we end up in places we don't even know that we're there. There's some self-deception that's actually going on. These guys don't even get it. How have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions, bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. 
If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. In today's language, you know what, you know what God's saying here? And Malachi's going, I dare you. I dare you. I dare you to give just even just the tithes. I dare you just to give it knowing that you've got need, knowing that I'm going to come and I'm going to help you. God says, probably to us today too, I'd say, I dare you to give the first tenth of all you earn as a tithe. I dare you to tithe not just the net, but the gross. I mean, that, that, that was a whole Old Testament idea of the tithe, is it's the first 10%, it's the first fruits, right? God gets the cut first, and then everyone else gets the cut, all right? We just need to lodge a lawsuit in the High Court against the federal government for taking taxes away, all right? But you know, really, the heart is, God, I love you, everything belongs to you, so I'm taking the cream off the top and I'm giving you the first bit. God would say to you today, I dare you to budget generosity even when it seems you won't have enough. I dare you to renegotiate loans, to rework budgets, I dare you to liberate yourself from debt so that you can give. I dare you to not go to the movies. I dare you to not buy an iPod, to not buy that CD so that you can give and invest in God's stuff. I dare you to do that and trust me to look after you. Because you know what? Instinct on the inside for us is we just go, what about me? How will I know I'm going to have enough? Well, isn't that God's promise up here? He says, if you give to me and if you're generous to me, I promise you'll never run out. You'll never run out. Then this incredibly probing quote from uh, John Piper, you might be going, I'm struggling just to give 10%. Here's what Piper says, my own conviction is that most middle and upper class Americans, and we could say Australians, who merely tithe are robbing God. In a world where 10,000 people a day starve to death and many more than that are perishing in unbelief, the question is not what percentage must I give but how much dare I spend on myself? How much of God's trust fund dare I use to surround myself with comforts? Is anyone uncomfortable? You see, I think ongoing discomfort with how much money we have I actually think that's appropriate. I don't think we should ever be at peace, fully at peace, with how much stuff we've got. All right? We have lots of stuff. We have lots of stuff. Here's myth number three. It's more godly to be poor than rich. I'll tell you something. If this is true, we have a lot to fear in the West because that makes us incredibly ungodly. <laughs> All right? Because it turns out we're incredibly rich. This is what Randy Alcorn says. He says, If you have sufficient food, decent clothes, live in a home that shields you from the weather and own some kind of reliable transportation, you're in the top 15% of the world's wealthy. Add some savings, two cars in any condition, a variety of clothes and your own house and you've reached the top 5%. You may not feel wealthy, but that's only because you're comparing yourself to the mega wealthy. 
And that's the weird thing about uh, wealth is uh, people, there's kind of this whole status anxiety thing that goes on where people just want to be getting close to or, or around about the same as everyone else. So people would rather be getting $50,000 a year if most people are getting $50,000 a year than getting $70,000 a year if everyone else is on 100. Do you get my point? It's just this weird kind of status thing that goes on. Let me give you some more uncomfortable stats. The average world wage for people is about $18,000 a year. More than a third of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. This is from a BBC report. Less than $2 a day. So if you do the maths there, right, that actually means that there's a lot of people getting more than $2 a day. True? Now, the, the average Australian wage in 2012 was actually $1,458 a week. That's what the average was. Isn't that incredible? Like, if you think about the incredible wealth, now you might be sitting there and you might be going, well, I don't get that. Well, you get more than $2 a day. You might say, well, it costs more to actually live. Yes, it does. It costs more to live in the West. But not that much more. <laughs> Am I saying it's wrong to be rich? I'm not saying it's wrong to be rich, right? This is the money myth here. The really interesting thing in this BBC report, just as a side note, is they said even people who are on $2 a day spend 40% of their wealth on pleasures. Isn't that interesting? They said they, only, they, they spend 60% of their wage on food and what they need to survive, but they're willing to go through malnutrition to, get 40%, to spend 40% of their stuff on pleasures. And I just thought, whoa, man, doesn't that tell you something about the human psyche? Really, really interesting. Here's the thing, folks. We're rich. True? We are rich. All right? There's actually no one in this room who's not rich. Everyone's rich. All right? You might be going, well, I don't have much, and I owe lots of money, and I'm, you're rich. All right? Comparative to most of the world, you're rich. 1 Timothy 6 verse 9 says this. It says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of what? Evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you think that's true for Australia, that the love of money has actually drawn people away from God and away from the church? Yeah, I reckon. And it's entirely possible that for some of us, there's been seasons of our life where we've been drawn away from God because we've been so focused on money. It's a scary place. Here's the thing. Here's a big idea. It's a good thing to make money. It's a really super good thing to make money. But you need to be super careful. Because it's so incredibly tempting. That's what 1 Timothy 6 verse 9 talked about, 9 and 10 that I just read talked about. It's super dangerous. It's kind of like if you're going to go and you're going to hang out with the people hitting up crack cocaine, right? You just need to know that's a super dangerous place to be in, right? Because you could get tempted to get into the same sort of stuff, all right? So it's a good thing to make money. 
but you just need to know it's really, really dangerous. There are a whole bunch of rich guys in the Bible. David was incredibly rich. Job was incredibly rich. Abraham was very wealthy. There's nothing wrong with wealth, but you just need to know that wealth is very, very dangerous. And one of the best antidotes you've got to the poison of wealth is giving. One Timothy six verse uh, seventeen to eighteen is uh, hugely instructive on money. As for the rich in this present age, as for people sitting in the project in July two thousand and thirteen, charge them not to be proud or haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Don't set your hopes on riches. But here's the thing, you don't want to end up at the extreme either where you just kind of go, well, it's bad to be rich because everyone else in the world is not rich and so you walk around with this dour, depressive view of the stuff that you own, right? At some level, God's saying he's blessed you with stuff and you're not to go around and be all depressive about it and be unthankful about it, but just to enjoy it. Now, it's dangerous to say that in a message like this because... There's part of our hearts where we just, well, it means I need more stuff, all right? Because he wants me to enjoy it, all right? But here's the thing, the Bible doesn't go to either of those extremes. It says God's blessed you. Has God blessed you? He has. He has. Very, well, super well, all right? We all get way better than we deserve, all right? Anything better than hell? God's really generous, all right? You've got way, way better than hell. So have I, all right? So don't get all negative and dour and depressive about it, but just recognise that God wants you, you can enjoy it, God wants you to be generous, and ultimately God wants you to trust in Him. Here's what rich people are to do. Here's what God wants you to do. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Did you notice that? It's not like most of my life I've thought, oh, it's all about sacrifice, 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 sacrifice and missing out. Jesus doesn't actually talk sacrifice that much. And the Bible doesn't talk sacrifice that much when it comes to money. It talks about storing up treasure. It talks about reward. And we're going to get to this in a minute, but here's the bottom line. If you want to take your possessions with you, the only way to do it is to give them away now because God promises a reward after you die for doing that. Now you might say, and I saw a Facebook post a little while ago saying that the only true love is love that has no sense of self in it. And I can appreciate where the person's coming from. I think it was a quote from Mother Teresa. The problem is... God just doesn't always operate that way in the Bible. He says, if you give your stuff to me, I'm going to reward you. Somehow in there, God's making some kind of allowance for for people to have an interest in why they would actually do something. Delight yourself in me and I'll give you what? Yeah, the desires, the treasures of your heart. It's it's this impulse from God all the time because he knows how we work, right? He can stand up and go, grit your teeth and just do it. But he actually stands up and goes, here's what I'd like you to do. And you know what? It's going to be a bonus at the end of it. Now, the key's going to be whether you actually love the bonus or whether you love him, right? Because here's the thing. If you just love the bonus, he doesn't give you the bonus. You love him, he gives you the bonus. All right? Weird. 
right? But smart, really smart, right? Because humans just go, well, it's kind of like often in uh, classes, teachers walk in with a barrel of lollies, you know, or chocolates or something, and all of a sudden the kids are really good, right? It's just like, no, I've got no interest at all in being disciplined, I just want chocolate, all right? And the truth is they get out and if they get with a teacher who's not giving any rewards, then they're in trouble, right? Because all of a sudden it's not that much fun to be disciplined uh, and you don't rot your teeth like you desire to. So how do we trust in riches? Well, let me say this. Before I get into that, you can be poor and not trust God, true? You can be rich and not trust God, true? You can be poor and still put your trust in money when you don't have it, true? Because you'd be sitting there thinking, if only I had it, I'd be okay. All right? If you're saying things like that, you're actually not trusting in God, you're trusting in money. If only I had this, I'd be okay. Here's the thing. If only you trusted in God, you'll be okay. So how do we trust in riches? You know, uh, one way we do it is by trusting in insurance that we can buy to protect ourselves rather than trusting in God. We trust in riches by needing vast cash reserves rather than having to trust in God. We spend to feel better. We go and engage in retail therapy instead of uh, trusting in God. It's a classic byline of a Clifford Gardens campaign a while ago. I don't know whether I'd go to Clifford Gardens anyway if I needed a pick-me-up. Uh, maybe we should edit that out. Uh, we uh, trust in our retirement portfolio. Our tight grip on money actually reveals uh, a confidence in and a treasuring of something more than God. And we're constantly bombarded by marketing to do so. But here's the thing. As I said before, it's not bad to be rich. Enjoy what God's given. But as 2 Corinthians 9 verse 11 says, says you will be enriched in every way for all your generosity. See, God doesn't actually want any of his people to be a cul-de-sac when it comes to money. He wants his people to be a conduit. And a conduit is a pipe that you send something through to get from one place to another, not something that terminates in a cul-de-sac. Number four, money myth. All people will be treated equally in heaven. I'm just telling you, in case you haven't heard it before, no one gets treated equally in heaven. Everyone gets treated fairly, but you don't get treated equally. All right? It's very, very clear, right? Because lots and lots of times through uh, the New Testament, Jesus talks about the fact that if you do one thing, he'll reward you. If you don't do it, you don't get the reward. So there's a reward, right? And for some of us, it's a bit jarring. You just go, well, that's not fair. Well, no, it is fair. All right? Because he told you. All right? This wasn't just a, a switcheroo that he kind of did at the end. Huh? See, I told you. All right? I didn't tell you at the time, but I kind of, you should have worked that out. And uh, something, I told you something bad's going to happen if you get to the end and you don't do it. All right? He tells you he's kind of full disclosure. All right? That's Jesus. Full disclosure. I'm going to tell you all about it. All right? One classic example, fear of man example. He goes, if you stand up and you do things just to get the praise of other people, you don't get any reward. Right? Full disclosure. He says... That's the only reward you get. But if you do it in a way that you don't get the attention from people, I'm going to reward you. All right? It's all about you either get the reward there or you get my reward. And my reward, uh, a lot of the time, actually comes after people die. Jesus speaks lots about rewards. And here's in probably uh, the most famous 
a well-known sermon that Jesus ever preached, a sermon on the mount. Here's what he said. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, just stop there. He's not really saying, give me your stuff, right? You know what he's saying? Invest wisely. Don't buy into a stock exchange company that's just about to go broke. True? That's what he's saying. He's going, well, you could put all your money into this, but that would be really, really stupid. That would be a really sucky investment. You with me? He's going, you just want to put your money where you can get the most bang for your buck. You get that? That's what he's doing. All right? And this is not sedate, calm Christian sacrifice. You know? It's not that at all. Just going, well, you'd be really dumb to put it, invest it in something that's just going to rust and it's going to get trashed by moths. Why would you do that? That's a really dumb place to invest your money. All right, so what does he say? But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the thing. He's just saying stockpile in heaven. Make up a habit of using your money in a way it's just going to keep stockpiling, right? That's the only way to spend your money on God's stuff and what he's calling you to spend your money on is the way that you actually transition your possessions in this life to the next. It's the only way. And it's the best investment. Here's the thing. Everyone's going to be happy in heaven, right? Because envy and covetousness is going to be taken away, right? Because when you get up there, there might be some people who have more stuff than you, all right? And here's the good news. You're not going to be sitting there thinking, that sucks, they've got more stuff than me, all right? Because you're going to be happy and there's not going to be any of that sort of stuff going on. But here's the bottom line. There's going to be people in heaven that have got more and less rewards than you. And the bottom line is that Jesus is saying, this is actually going to be all about your heart. This is actually going to be a good thing. Jesus in another part in Matthew, in Matthew 13, says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's more blessed to what? To give, right? So here's the thing. If you don't give much, you're probably missing out on a whole bunch of happiness. True? Has anyone here ever given stuff, been really generous, and you just go, that's really fun? Has anyone ever done that? It's, re- it's super fun. All right? Maybe that's what you need to do some more. You see, like, we can often read scriptures and parables of Jesus and just go, oh, so the guy, what a bummer. He's out there, you know, and his jaw's dragging along the ground, and he's just going, ah, stuff it. Now there's this treasure. I've got to sell everything to get, for, to get it, you know? And he's just all bummed out about it. Jesus goes, he's not bummed out about it. He's actually pumped about it and he knows he's getting something better. Matthew 5, verse 46 says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? What is he saying? He's saying when you love someone, they can't love you back, he's going to give you a reward. Matthew 6, verse 3, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
It's good. You get a reward. Invest wisely. Luke 6.22 Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Why? Because great is your reward. God rewards people. And then in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 14, it actually says this. It says, uh, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. God's going to test everything that we've built over our lives. And if you've, if you've built anything in your life that actually stands the test that God's going to bring against it, what does he do? He rewards you. Yeah. don't just... For some of you, like if you've kind of got a... You know, you get, you get convicted of stuff really quickly. You can hear the first half of that, that, that verse there. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, you go, oh, I've just got to be really careful that, that it survives, right? But God's just kind of, he's just going to smack a reward right in straight after it. Just go, build something really worth, well, but here, it's going to be good for you. I'm going to look after you. I'll reward you. All right, the fifth one here, I just want to go through some miscellaneous myths about money. And you'll hear a bit of Sondergeld honesty here. Um, this is Sondergeldism. It, it actually, it's, it's a competitor of communism. No, not really, I'm just kidding. All right? But it might just take over the world. You know, they reckon that um, it was just recently that it, it was on the news that 60% of Australians, Australians are becoming really tight, all right? And they're haggling for, they reckon 60% of people haggle before they buy stuff now. All right? which is a really interesting dynamic because if you go, I had a whole bunch of clips and newspaper articles from around about 2006 to 2008, but the vibe has hugely changed since 2006 to 2008. Money was pretty free and people were spending up big now and now everyone's being really tight and they're being really careful about what they're doing with their money. That's a really good thing. All right? It's really good that things have shifted like that. But... You just need to make sure that that's not turning you into a possessive person who's not generous. So here's the first one. I shop wisely and don't waste money. The uh, groundsman at school, I was telling him, uh, ah, this, you'll probably laugh at this too. You can laugh at me because it's a good test for my fear of men. <coughs> But I told him how, look, we've got solar panels on our house, right? And I thought, no, oh, it's cool. We've got a solar hot water system. We'll switch it off during the day so that all the excess power just is like the feed-in tariff. And, and he just, and I said, sometimes, I said to him, we just forget to switch it back on. And sometimes we have cold water or it's not very, not very warm. You know what he said to me? He goes, ah, oh, you're one of these that try to squeeze the kangaroo off the $1 coin. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, good to save, right? True? It's good to use shopper dockets. It's good to use fuel discount dockets, right? But I'll just, I'd put it to you and I'd need to put it to myself too. What do you do with the extra money that you save? Okay, are you just saving money so you can spend more? Or are you saving money so that you can be more secure and have more money in your bank account? Or is your trust ultimately in God? This one here, I don't have enough money to give. 
Well, what is enough money to give? You know, you might say, I don't have enough money. I need to pay off my mortgage. That would be wise. Really? Like, so for the next 30 years, you're not going to give anything hardly? And you're just going to... Seriously, just put you in a really dangerous place where you could just be absolutely hook, line and sinker taken by the temptation to love money? Really? That's a long time, isn't it? Isn't 30 years a long time to pay off a mortgage and not to be generous? Who knows? See, I, I, the way, this is the way I see it. I think God gives money to people, and this is, I've just seen this in my life. He gives money to people. If they use it well and they're really generous, he seems to give them more. All right? And you just got to... It's that whole thing. I, I preached a while ago at the project here about how faith is about imagining. It's about using, it, using your imagination to see what's not actually real yet. And God invites us into that world where he says, if you put me first, if you're generous with your money, who knows what I might do. I mean, you would do that. If you had a whole bunch of money and you had someone and you said, I want you to go and spend my money really well, if they went and just, just wasted it, you'd just go, oh, that's it. The flow ends, right? But if they go out and they use it really wisely, you go, well, I've got another 50 grand. Here you go. I need to spend money to get what I want before God gets his hands on it. I've done this, right? I remember I wanted to buy this, because uh, in a former life I was a drummer, I wanted to buy this drum, right? And it was like pretty much almost the top of the line pearl thing and I was at uni and I didn't have much money and I kind of got this lump sum from my study kind of payment, back pay and I'm just, I've got to get down and I've got to buy this thing before God puts any conviction on my heart for it, you know? <laughs> And it's exactly what I did. And you know what? You know what that tells me is that tells me uh, back then I just didn't get the gospel. I didn't get what it meant. I didn't get the generosity of God. I, I understood God as someone who just wanted to wreck my farm instead of someone that was bringing me alive. And you know what? I'll tell you this. If you are just totally self-centered with your money... I think probably God's impulse is he's going to take it off you or he'll give you less. Why would he give you more? Isn't it interesting how sometimes when you, you know, I can look back, I can't think of any specific, specific examples, but sometimes when you're generous and when you don't have that much money, things don't break like they do when you've got lots of money. Now, I don't know whether that's God or not, but you know, I think sometimes it is. I don't know when it is, but I think sometimes the car doesn't break down and the washing machine doesn't break down because God can just keep those things going for 30 years if he wants to. And if he's got someone who's using his money really well and being really generous with it, well, look out. Maybe your washing machine's not going to break down. Maybe your car's not going to break down. And this one, this is me to a T. I'm not happy to give money and therefore I don't have to because I'm not a cheerful giver. Because God loves a cheerful giver. So you just get grumpy about it and you can keep it, right? Oh, come on, you know the answer to that one, don't you? You just need to repent. And Jesus would probably just say, look, here's the thing. You start putting your treasure where your treasure needs to be and before long your heart's going to be there too. All right? That's kind of how it works. And that last one there is a bit the same. 
Here's the thing. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to give. You don't have to be generous. You don't have to love God more than money. You don't have to have invincible joy. You don't have to have a big treasure in heaven. You don't have to be free from the tyranny of wealth and slavery to your possessions. You know, more possessions means more upkeep. You don't have to be free from worrying about losing your money. You don't have to be entrusted with more money because you're faithful with a little. You don't have to go to heaven. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do now. You know what? One day, everyone's going to have to do something. One day, everyone's going to bow the knee to Jesus. And this is just the time of amnesty, in a sense, where God is calling us to follow him in these areas. If you're not a cheerful giver, you're missing the gospel. So, I'm going to finish in five minutes. You've got three opportunities the way I see it. First one's this. If you get a raise, you get more money. Here's what you could do. There's nothing wrong with it. One thing you want to think about is whether you're going to raise your standard of living or whether you're going to raise your standard of giving. All right? There's an economic law that actually says that people's standard of living rises to meet their income. Ephesians 4.28 actually says this, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labour, doing honest work with his hands. Why? So that he'll be able to give to those in need. I don't think, when I think about doing more work and earning more money, I don't think that often about doing it so I can give more away. But yet that's a biblical impulse, isn't it? Work harder, earn more money, so you've got more to give. Interesting. In uh, the Courier-Mail, uh, they have a finance section on uh, Mondays and uh, back on uh, the 8th of uh, July they had this finance section and they asked the Gen Y lady to make a bit of a comment about um, things that they don't get about money, all right? What are three money mysteries that continue to baffle you? Check this out. Okay, having probably, uh, most probably offended all the colleagues, these are my top money mysteries. Number one for Gen Y. Why, no matter what we earn, do our living expenses tend to equal that amount? Some families struggle on $50,000, some struggle on $100,000. Last year, Federal Minister Bill Shorten admitted to struggling on $330,000. Why is it that the necessary expenses of a household, necessaries in inverted commas, seem to correlate so closely and rise in line with the amount that they earn, no matter what that amount is? Fair point, all right? And that's actually an economic law that's been uh, recognised. Opportunity number two. This uh, message hasn't been about uh, giving money to the project. This money's been about giving money to God and recognising that he owns everything that you own. All right? And here's the thing. Are we going to tell you what to do? No, we're not going to tell you what to do, but we are going to say that God owns everything that you own, or you think you own, and he calls you to be generous. So you better find out from him where he wants you to put his money. All right? And uh, for those who are on the city, I'll be posting on the city 19 questions you, sh you should ask of any Christian organisation before you actually give to them, all right? And uh, it's, I think it's about seven pages long, so it'd be really worthwhile if you have a read of that because you don't just go and throw your money away to anyone, okay, even if they've got a good idea, okay? And here's the thing, you don't go giving money to us 
unless you're able to answer those questions on there satisfactorily. All right? If we're just throwing money around at the project here and just wasting it and just blowing it and just mishandling it, you should not give any money to the project. All right? But if you like where the project's going, if you like what God's doing in the project, if you like what God does in you and you want to sow into it and you really want to help it to go forward, this would be a really good place to stick some money. And the Bible actually talks about this in Galatians 6.6. 6. Let him who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. All right? So this is where you give me 10 grand and... No, I'm kidding, all right? What's the principle? The principle here is just to say, so you come and you get a blessing, return the blessing. All right? This is the best kind of, you did it to me, so I'm going to do it to you. All right? And I'm not... Please don't give, sneak any envelopes with cash in it to me and all that sort of stuff. All right? I'd rather it if you just gave to the church. Okay? People have done that, and that's a, honestly, it's a massive blessing. It just blows us away when people do it, all right? But we're not doing this gig for money. Um, we're doing it because God called us to do it, okay? And we'd love for you to be a contributor to what God's up to, not a contributor to Peter or, or someone else, okay? But, uh, and I'm not saying it's bad for you to do it. If you feel like God, the people who have done that and given us money have, have really felt like God's been calling them to do it, all right? If God calls you to do it and be generous to someone in the leadership, you feel free to do it, okay? One of the things that we talk about whenever someone gives us money is uh, we're just open about it between the, um, the three guys, between Diff, Nathan and myself, all right? Because we know the capacity for us to love money. So we're going to be open and accountable with each other about any kind of gifts or honorarium that we actually get, okay? But we'd love it, really, if you would give to uh, what God's up to here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2 says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul just says, look, sit down and work out what you're going to give and give in proportion with how God's prospering you. All right? Is it 10%? We're not going to tell you it's 10%. That would be a good place to start, probably. But we're not going to say rigid 10%. Opportunity 3 was what I was... uh, talking to you about before about the fact that you're an investment manager for God you've got the classic parable of the talents where uh, the master gives the, uh, the dude some money and says I want you to do your best with the money that I've given you two of them do well the other one doesn't the one that didn't invest or do anything with it loses everything the guys that take the risk uh, get more money and uh, I think God would be calling us as a church to um, to be generous True? Now, the word on the street is that uh, some of the younger people in the church were pretty pumped about what Wayne shared about his mission thing. All right? And uh, information I got told is that someone would really love to go. But you know what they said? But we don't have, don't have the money. Ah, see, but we do have the money, don't we? And this is why I'm saying this is not about us. It's not about the project, ultimately. It's ultimately about how does God want you to use his stuff? Could we come up with enough money between all of us to send a few of them over on, on a mission thing? Yeah, we could. All right? Am I saying that we all should? I'm not saying that, right? But we should go to God and say, God, what do you want me to do with your cash? What do you want me to do with your stuff? What do you want me to do with your house and your car? Someone needs a lift? Oh, it's going to be a hassle, but it's not my car, so I'm going to go and pick that person up. Your car? They need to get to church. They need to get somewhere. They need to be helped. I'm going to go and help them because it's actually not my possession. 
Final quote, this is from uh, Randy Alcorn. On the wall of President Lyndon Johnson's White House office hung a framed letter written by General Sam Houston to Lyndon Johnson's great-grandfather, Baines, more than 100 years earlier. Baines had led Sam Houston to Christ, the general. Houston was a changed man, no longer coarse and belligerent, but peaceful and content. The day came for Houston to be baptised, an incredible event for those who knew him. After his baptism, Houston offered to pay half the local minister's salary. When someone asked him why, he said, my pocketbook was baptised too. And that's where I want to finish. When someone's changed by God, it doesn't just change spiritually, it changes everything. And change affects the way that they use their money. Is everyone okay? I'm, uh, I'll pray and I will finish. I wonder if you'd stand with me and, and we'll pray. God, you know I'm the wrong guy to preach this and I have a lot to learn. And it's been good for me to think again about things the way that you see them. And uh, I just pray that you'd uh, help us to remember the stuff we've got's not ours. The kids that, that we have don't belong to us. We don't even belong to us. We belong to you. And that's good. It's good because you're up to good. You're a good God. And you, uh, you want wise investment managers, want wise fund managers. You, you want us to use your stuff well. So God, I pray that for some of us here, maybe we'd even go home and rework budgets, rethink things, uh, re rethink things that have been sure things. It's just been, that's been the default setting for a while. I and mean, then maybe we just go back and have a look at that again and just think, do I want that to be the default setting? Or, is, or are you calling for something more? And God, for us not to get a legalistic, condemned kind of, oh, I'm not good enough kind of vibe about it, but see the joy in what you're doing in calling us to this. So God, thank you that you are generous. You've been overflowingly generous to us and please help us to be like you.